0: Do you know what I learned today? What's that? Your nipples are older than your teeth.
1: <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 18 of Double Reel, the podcast that brings support and comfort to film nerds around the world. It's October 2021, the leaves are turning golden brown and it's getting darker and colder out there. We're here to help you settle in for a tough winter with a generous helping of cinematic content. My name's James Adamson, and I'm an ordinary member of the public with no standing in the media or the film industry. What I do have is a geeky love of film and obscure stories from the world of cinema, and a lot of opinions. Joining me on the podcast is my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James.
0: Uh, Hello, everyone. Happy to be back and looking forward to getting stuck into this meaty installment that we have this month.
1: We aim to provide an old-school filmgoer's experience. This is the podcast equivalent of the monthly film magazines you used to buy in the newsagent, packed with a range of features from the world of film.
0: Each episode is divided into two reels, with an intermission so you can refuel and refresh before you tackle the second half.
1: If you want to comment on the podcast or with your thoughts on the world of cinema generally, you can reach us on Twitter on at Film. You may notice we've changed the username to make it easier to find. There's also an Instagram account called Double Reel Podcast and a Double Reel Podcast Facebook page for you to follow if you're that way inclined.
0: Here's what's coming up in episode 18.
1: First there's a roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds with some film news, a look at how we're living up to our film related resolutions for 2021 and a look at some of the notable films we watched since the last episode.
0: Then it's time for Classics and Recommended, where we try to get away from an endless diet of TV repeats and instead get round to something from our backlog of great films we haven't seen yet. This month we're discussing a highly acclaimed thriller from the 1980s, which I haven't seen before, no way out.
1: Our hidden gem feature draws your attention to a lesser known film that deserves a wider audience, which this month is the Saudi Arabian drama, Wajah.
0: Then we turn to the one that got away and look at a tall tale of a potentially great film a top director tried and failed to bring to the big screen. For episode 18, we're marking the imminent release of Denis Villeneuve's new sci-fi blockbuster with the story of Alejandro Jodorowski's Dune.
1: We close the first reel of this episode with the remake Hate Watch, which this month features the 2005 reimagining of John Carpenter's classic Assault on Precinct 13.
0: After the intermission, the second reel of this episode will feature the Big Conversation, in which the Adamson's tackle a topic from the film world in more detail. In episode 18, we're looking at great movie soundtracks and our favourite film composers.
1: But first, some messages from listeners, a.k.a. the podcast magazine Letters page. People have got in touch regarding our Year of the Carpenter this month, which is the original version of Assault on Precinct 13, uh, and obviously the remake that we're covering in the episode. Rona says the original film is a classic, the remake is just okay. Lots of other films borrow from it, like Nest and the recent film Cop Shop is influenced by it as well. Shabir, Tom and Abu will agree the original is much better. Mark says the original is a cult favourite, but I liked how the remake updated the story. Well, fair enough. Both good films in their own right, in my opinion, he says. Thomas says, I love the remake because I like the fact that the corrupt cops are the bad guys. On our classic No Way Out, Lawrence writes, Costner was on a hot streak back then, The Untouchables, then this, then Bull Durham, and then Field of Dreams. Peter says, good film, still suspenseful when you rewatch it, and know how it ends. And Gary says, terrific movie, and an example of a remake that was as good as the original. Thanks, Gary, very on-brand. Our hidden gem, Wadja, really is a hidden gem. Not many people seem to be aware of it, but Norshin and Shadiso both said they liked it. On the one that got away about Alejandro Hodorowski's Dune, a few people got in touch. Allegria says, just watch any of Hodorowski's films and you will see how insane this film would have been. James, not either of us, says, I read there was going to be a scene featuring 400 people all defecating at the same time. Well. Harley said, I think all versions of Dune would struggle because the original story is so slow and heavy going. Even the 1984 original had good moments, but was defeated by the source material. Well, Harley, we might be about to find out if you're right. We did get some comments on movie music, but we've saved them for the discussion in real too. And finally, Errant gets in touch to say thanks for featuring My Cousin Vinny last month. It was a great listen, and I'm sure Rudy Giuliani would have enjoyed it too, as it's apparently his favourite film. Which takes the shine off it for me a little bit. Thanks to everyone who wrote in, it's much appreciated. Now on with the podcast. now for our regular roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds we look at any major film news that's breaking this month and how we've been getting on fitting and movie watching with our busy exciting lives as well as that at the start of the year we made some film related new year's resolutions for 2021 and we'll be checking in on whether we've managed to keep them up so first a bit of housekeeping. Um, our real two um, uh, conversation this month is about movie music, which is about you know soundtracks, uh, our favourite composers like Hans Zimmer and John Williams, and great songs that have been used in films. And um, because of the, uh, the 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 links between Anchor and Spotify, we've been able to feature the music, some of the music we've been talking about um, in that discussion. It does mean, however, that if you're using music from Spotify, then you can only listen to the podcast on Spotify. Uh, we do recommend that you go on Spotify if you can to listen to that and get the music. For those of you who don't have Spotify or prefer to get your podcast from elsewhere, we are going to be releasing a, a music-free version of that, which uh, we'll still have the chat and a good conversation about uh, about the topic. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention is that we have been talking uh, in our in our end sort of credit uh previous episodes that we are going to do another podcast that is now live um we are doing a new podcast together called the adamson's versus where each episode we uh, talk about something usually a photograph or an incident that's taken our fancy uh, and our first episode is already out it's the adamson's versus the taliban on pedalos so get along and listen to that if you like uh, we will be doing another episode soon which is the adamson's versus the cocaine bear and i hope that's uh piqued your interest to have a listen to that as well um, apart from that, it's time for the news. Uh, so, James, any news stories take your fancy recently?
0: Um, I don't actually know. I don't think I've actually seen much film news. I haven't um, seen a lot either. i trying to think. I know there's a, quite a fair few big films that have come out quite recently, so the only kind of headlines I've seen have been in relation to that. So it's not actually, here comes this new film, or this has happened with... um, Yeah, it's
1: been reaction to the films that have been coming out. It feels a little bit like it's getting back to normal, isn't it?
0: Which is fantastic, long may it continue.
1: Yeah. I mean, a couple of things that I noticed. uh, Christopher Nolan's next film project has been announced.
0: Oh, shit.
1: Um, It's a wartime drama about Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the atomic bomb. Oh, I
0: saw that. It sounds
1: slightly different from his recent films. Apparently, it's got a $100 million budget, which is almost indie for him. Uh, and he's going to be working with Universal Um, he's been with Warner for years Tenet was his last film under that deal Um, he's gone somewhere new this time and I think his relationship with Warner turned sour um, for possibly several reasons but the big one was when they started talking about streaming at the same time as going out in the cinema he's as we know he's quite a purist he doesn't even you know he still films on celluloid and stuff and he wasn't happy about that Um, apparently Killian Murphy is set to star Um, maybe he's going to be playing Oppenheimer we'll find out yeah I think he is Um, yeah uh, the other the other story I heard this really interests me. Ridley Scott's been doing the rounds exact, exactly as you say, James. A lot of the news has been around films that are out now. And when he was when Ridley Scott was talking about his new film, The Last Duel, um, he said what well, his next film is going to be, which is going to be a, a biopic about Napoleon. Fucking hell! With Joaquin, he's, fu- he's like eighty five. He's not slowing down at all, is he? Sorry, carry on. Uh, yeah, his uh, Joaquin Phoenix is going to be playing Napoleon, oh, which I'm super looking forward to. That'll be very good. And it looks like Jodie Comer and Ridley Scott enjoyed working together on the last duel because she's going to be playing Napoleon's uh, partner, Josephine. Oh, nice. Um, she's just been in the last duel with him. Um, the films, at the moment, the title of the film is Kitbag because that was the name of the biographical uh, novel or, or historical uh, book about Napoleon that, that they're basing the film on. I'm not sure if that's still going to be the title when it comes out. It doesn't sound very kind of epic or exciting. Apparently, it's based on a saying that Napoleon had about every kit bag contains a general staff in it. I'm sure it will become clear. Um, It's kind of a big deal to see a new Napoleon film. Uh, Famously, Stanley Kubrick uh, tried and failed to make a film about Napoleon, which is going to be one of our one-that-got-away topics at some point in the future. Um, There was a famous silent movie about his early years by director Abel Gans, which is uh, a highly influential film, but also was so difficult to make that, you know, that that film was originally about just the early years of Napoleon and then um, they were going to make subsequent, you know, sequels, which they abandoned because apparently films about Napoleon are so hard to make. So it's interesting to see Ridley Scott have a yeah. crack at it. As you say, he's an 84-year-old man taking on something hugely ambitious like that. Um, he's
0: fucking bananas, isn't he?
1: It's also interesting, Ridley Scott's debut film was The Duelist, which is set in the Napoleonic War, so he's kind of returning to that era as well. That's kind of... Kind of cool, but Whacking Phoenix is Napoleon, directed by Ridley oh, Scott. You, you, definitely sells it to me.
0: You just need to write a decent script, and that's winning every Oscar. Isn't Absolutely.
1: It? If yeah, we, yeah, we said before, if Ridley Scott's got the right scripture in business, right? And the Absolutely. other film that's in production that I I saw, um, I'm frankly I'm less excited about this, but it is quite notable. Peter Dinklage is in a new version of Cyrano de Bergerac. Oh, he's playing
0: Cyrano de? Ber- um.
1: See, I love Peter Dinklage, um, but I'm not sure we need another version of Cyrano.
0: I think the problem is, is that to to anyone else, I think that's like, a, oh, that might be interesting because Peter Dinklage is a great actor and Cyrano de Bergerac is a great story. But Cyrano de Bergerac with Gerard Depardieu is literally your favorite performance. Like uh, yeah. to you, there's no other performance. That can I, touch I, I don't it. think so there's another way. I think I think that's quite. I think it's a kind of, kind of biased from you there because that is your Possibly. favorite yeah. male performance. Um, yeah. And Aaron. they've
1: also done like an interesting, apparently this is going to be a slightly different take on uh, on it. It's going to be a musical. And I think doing a different take on Cyrano Diversion has also, also already been done by Steve Martin uh, in uh, Roxanne. Uh, so it's just like how much mileage is there left in this story? I'm also a bit un- uninspired by this because it's been directed by Joe Wright. And I'm frankly, I'm not a fan of his. What's he done again? He did um, Hannah, that spy thing with oh. um, Saoirse Ronan. He did Atonement. He did oh. a, a version of Anna Karenina with uh, with Keira Knightley. And oh. I just find all of his films really quite flat. I just don't think they really they sort of they're a bit kind of dull and lifeless on screen. I mean, Atonement, the Dunkirk scenes are pretty good, but the rest of it really leaves me cold. Um, the other things, doing this sort of thing as a musical, I'm not sure that's going to fly. Really, it's quite a profound story. And I think musical numbers and jazz hands could possibly ruin it unless you have like serious musical talent involved, which basically means Lin-Manuel Mal- Lin Miranda, right? If you haven't got someone as good as him doing the musical, it could end up being a bit, you know, what rhymes with short, everyone? Oh, fuck, you know? Uh, he did that fucking god-awful Peter Pan from. Was that him?
0: Where Hugh Jackman played Blackbeard. And- oh, I
1: didn't realise that was him as well. Rooney Mata played Tiger Lily. Oh, Pam. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I'm I'm not very excited about that. But other than that, I didn't see a huge amount of other kind of big news. As you say, a lot of the news is films that are out this month, which is another, you know, another topic. Um, Any, any sort of new releases or upcoming releases that have excited you, mate? No, no, but I've watched a lot of new releases, so I think we should uh, start maybe getting yeah. to the resolutions. Well, why don't I quickly, why don't I quickly go through it, because I think what we can do is we can talk about the films are out this coming month, and then we can talk about the films we've actually seen. Okay. Upcoming releases, some of these are already out at time of, of recording, but Venom, Let There Be Carnage is out, The Last Duel, uh, which we've watched uh, so we can talk about. Halloween Kills, the sequel to the 2018 kind of reboot of Halloween has come out um your sister watched that she she enjoyed it she didn't think it was as good as the last one but it was worth the wait and she enjoyed going to see it um june is out um soon i think it's actually out today as we record i'm booked in to see it next week so we'll talk about that next month but it is the reason we're talking about um you know the one that got away previous attempts to make june this month i'm very excited about that um So on the 22nd of October, The Harder They Fall is coming out. It's a black Western. I think uh, there's been a lot of real-life Western characters in the Wild West that have been overlooked. You don't only get Billy the Kid. You don't get any of their black counterparts. It's a guy called James Samuel. He's actually a musician. He's Steele's brother. He's directing it. I heard an interview with him, and that's why I posted it on social media. He's really enthusiastic, and it sounds really good. It's got Regina King, Zazie Beetz, who is in um, Deadpool 2, Delroy Lindo, Idris Elba, Lakeith Stanfield, um, That sounds really interesting, so I'm going to try and watch that. I'm not sure how widely released it's going to be. I don't know if you saw this in trailers when you went to see some other films, mate, but Wes Anderson has a new film out, The French Dispatch. Oh, fuck
0: off, yeah. I was fucking furious when I saw that cunt was still making films.
1: (laughs) When I saw the trailer for that, I thought, that contains everything you hate most. (laughs) <laughs> I'm not sure I fancy that one either. I mean, I like some Wes Anderson films, but that just looks too too Wes Anderson for me. I was I was watching the trailer for that with my girlfriend. When we went and see The Last Duel, and she didn't
0: understand why I was physically <laughs> seething that, that fucking <laughs> films are terrible,
1: man. Uh, yeah, I, what I just saw that I just thought you're gonna you you hate that. I just started fucking barking in the middle of this. Yeah. I was like <laughs> more promising is that on the 29th of October, Edgar Wright's new film Last Night in Soho comes out. I sort of portrayed of that. It looks quite interesting. It looks almost like some sort of horror-type, ghost-type story. Um, i have to see what it actually looks like.
0: Yeah, I don't like that shit. I don't like
1: horror shit. And mm. I
0: was intrigued by it. I was intrigued by how she was, you know, in the trailer, she becomes more and more like the who's obviously the person in her in her dreams or whatever the the premise is. Yeah. So she starts off as Thomas and McKenzie and she ends up looking more like Anya Taylor-Joy. Yeah. And then it became a horror film I was like yeah, I'm not going to see that. So
1: Yeah, well yeah, we'll see what it comes out like. I know Edgar Wright does have a bit of a background in horror, that's why he did Shaun of the Dead, even though his background prior to that was like comedy with um uh Simon Pegg. Fifth of oh,
0: not Catching Them Killers then.
1: <laughs> Fifth of November the new Marvel film Eternals is coming out. Which one's that again? Oh no, that one looks shit as well. Yeah, that's the one that's been directed by Chloe Zhao, who just won the Oscar. Um, also, Spencer with Kristen Stewart as Princess Diana, which looks complete shit.
0: I don't know. I, I I've heard good stuff about Kristen Stewart. Kirsten is it? Kristen? Kirsten?
1: I'm not sure. Um, Bella yeah. from Twilight. Um, she may well have gone and you know sunk her teeth properly into the character. But the trailer looks fucking awful. Is all I can report.
0: It's getting incredible reviews. So yeah. they've obviously just done a, not uh, uh, to be honest, that's the least in, like least offensive um, thing about print or oh, Diana Princess of Wales to come out this month. Did you see? There's a fucking musical. No. Did you see? It's the oh my! It's a musical about Di- like D- Diana's life. Oh I was wow. Like, oh, I was like, um, and it's like they're doing like as as fucking. Full on West Side Story, as you can imagine, they're doing all oh, that jazz hands and shit. Oh and my like, god! Like this woman died, like, and she was, you know, she hated her life for what, what rhymes 16- with bulimia? You know, what I mean, she had a horrible time yeah. of it for sixteen years leading up to her death. Yeah, I, I'm,
1: I'm not a on board for a Diana musical. Um, other than that, um, Clint Eastwood's <sighs> got a new film um on the 12th of November, Cry Macho. It's getting mixed reviews. And on the 19th of November, Ghostbusters Afterlife is out. That's obviously going to be talked about uh, quite a lot, given the fury around the previous Ghostbusters film.
0: I think... Uh, I'm, I'm going to be quite controversial. I don't think Ghostbusters is actually that good.
1: The original Ghostbusters?
0: Yeah, I don't even think it's that good to have the kind of cult following that it seems to have, that people can be so outraged about <laughs> yeah. the subsequent remake. Yeah, I mean, I enjoyed it.
1: I enjoyed it the first time around, but I wouldn't say it was as you... It's good. Yeah.
0: But it's not like there's so many better films in the eighties. It's not. Um, it's not.
1: It's not the holy writ that some people treat it as.
0: Yeah.
1: Okay, so those are the films that are coming out. But obviously, we have watched some films that are out in the cinema already. So it goes to your resolutions as well, James, in terms of the films you watch. So what have you been watching? I fucking watched loads. So I had a week
0: off and I went up um, to visit my mum. So I wasn't playing my Xbox or being tempted to play my Xbox. I just watched <laughs> films on her TV the entire week. So I watched. What did I watch? I watched One Night in Miami again. I watched the Forgotten Battle on Netflix, which is like a Dutch, um, Dutch film, but it's got like English cast. It's got uh, Tom Felton of Harry Potter fame playing yeah. like a uh, uh, a British officer, and then you've got uh, it's got follows like a Nazi soldier as well. Um, it was alright. It wasn't anything outstanding, but it was to- It talks about the. It's called the Forgotten Battle because it was talking about the Battle of the Shelled. I think how you pronounce it, which was to try and liberate Antwerp, so that the full kind of incursion back into continental Europe could go ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was all right. It was yeah. some good action sequences, quite harrowing because most films about World War Two are because it was an awful time in history. Um, but it was it was not. An, if anyone's got a spare two hours, it's not an awful film. It's right. not gonna it's not gonna blow you away with the acting, but it was uh, it's quite tense and it was uh, yeah kills 2 hours and then went to this c- I went to the cinema obviously to see No Time to Die at the beginning of the month. I went to the cinema to see The Last Duel which I thought was good. Watched 12 Years a Slave again. Oh, it's not a film but I tried to watch that Britney Spears documentary.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean that's been quite topical lately, hasn't it's it? It's
0: been very topical but I don't know, I found it quite flat. I don't know. I don't know I don't like the way they did it. I think they approached it from an angle that just didn't didn't grip me. No, oh, that's a shame.
1: Um no. Um yeah, so No Time to Die, I watched as well. I, I have to say I enjoyed it. I know there's been um, a lot of discussion about the some of the choices, which we'll not talk about for fear of spoiling the plot, but there's definitely been some new directions there. The idea of a of other 00 agents, uh, you know, a young black woman having taken over his designation, um, and he has yeah. to come back. Um, um, yeah, I mean, I, I I must say I enjoyed it. I thought it was
0: slick. I... Th- I think Daniel Craig will probably have to go down as as my favorite Bond, but I think he's had the advantage of having much more advanced techniques in cinema to re, you know to film it compared to you know other favorites like Sean Connery or maybe Roger Moore if you're weird. Um,
1: well, I have to say, but, I mean, Sean Connery was exactly the Bond they wanted him to be at the time, and Roger Moore was exactly yeah. the Bond they wanted him to be at the time. I think the person who was probably the most unfortunate was Timothy Dalton. He's my favorite Bond, but. He was trying to be what Daniel Craig is doing. And I think he had the performance for that and he had the characterization for that. What he didn't have was, you know, the people making, you know, bringing in really top directors and writers and, you know, just getting the stunts and action absolutely spot on. Um, so, I mean, Timothy Dalton helped drive the series in that direction. And Daniel Craig, I think... Um, is definitely the successor to that and I think that's they had there were a couple of nods to Timothy Dalton in the film and I think they recognized that legacy and I think Daniel, yeah. Daniel Craig has done with Bond what I think you know what I think people have been trying to do for a long time and I think it was a nice way for him to sign off with it with a good film no I, with, without
0: going into it too much it is I think it's a nice way of signing off it's quite a surprising ending but um
1: yeah I think we may we may at some future point when everyone's had a chance to see it do a a <laughs> either a special spoiler episode or a special post-credits discussion um, with spoilers so that we don't ruin it for anyone who hasn't seen it yet. They can avoid the discussion if they don't want to. Um, Maybe for episode 19 or something like that. Something like that, like that. yeah. Now, I, the only thing I wasn't super keen on, I have to say, is the villain. I don't think he was brilliant. I was going to say that. Um, I, like Ra- I, like, I like Rami Malik. I think he's a terrific actor, but he was—he he felt like such a run-of-the-mill Bond villain. He's yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, you know, secret lair, Crazy looking guy, you want to kill everybody, so what? And you compare him with someone like Silver in Skyfall and Lachie from Casino Royale, and he just didn't stand out. Do you know what I mean? It was, it was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. What
0: the problem I had with it is that it was, it, you're right, it was very run on the bill, and we were looking for something to. If, the way I see it is that Daniel Craig's made five Bond films, two of them are absolutely fucking rubbish, and this one I would categorize as good, but what's, what makes the other two, Casino Royale and Skyfall, better is the villain. Mm hmm. So the shephard isn't you know this kind of out there, outlandish alien character. He's just a he's just a villain. He he's there because he you know, he's a uh, he's a bad guy and he uh, he enjoys playing poker effectively and he enjoys being a villain. But he's very kind of casual. He's very low key, which I thought was quite good. I thought it worked quite well. It was very it, it was very tense. And then Javier Bardem, pretty much the opposite. Absolutely, you know, completely flamboyant and, um, just chaotic um but did it with a sense of you know you kind of understood his motivations but yeah. as, for rami malek i didn't quite fully understand the, the motivations and there's one line in it when we talk it's about like, it's
1: almost he had it he had a weapon of mass destruction almost because it's obligatory for a bond villain to have one yeah but and it was it's kind like, of like... okay yeah sure um but it was really it almost felt like he was it was like um excuse me bond villain do you mind um do you mind if we continue this very very big storyline for james bond here well, uh, we don't really care too much about what you're trying to do, but we need we we need to kind of we need to have some big fight scenes somewhere. So why not here?
0: Yeah, well, there's one line in it where he tries to explain his motivations for what he's doing, and I was like, where the fuck did that come
1: from? Yeah, it was like blah blah whatever.
0: Um, it was like he was like he was talking about I'm going to do this, blah, blah blah, and you know, I'm the villain and you're the you're the you're the good guy, but and was like, and I'm doing it because of this. And we're like, what?
1: Yeah, I know it was all. It's, you know, I think there there were some attempts at the beginning of the film to kind of... Because I think what they've been doing with these Bond films, again, no spoilers, but they have been trying to tie storylines together and Spectre um, and, and Blofeld have been you know, in, in, either in the background or, or increasingly in the foreground being involved in some of the battles that Bond's been fighting and he's linked to that and there's some motivation in that. But I think, again, it's like, we need a villain, we need, we need a secret lair, so let's just have one. And that it felt like it was the area of the story they put the least effort into. Mm, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, it was... Still good. It, still... It, 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 to be honest, it, it didn't ruin the film for me. I actually enjoyed no, the no. film. I enjoyed the film regardless of that. I have to say that the villains... Well... Yeah, in, in Spectre, I thought, while I think Blofeld is a terrific villain and Christopher Watts could have done a good job of it, I think they made such a mess of <clears throat> that film and, the, and what and and how they positioned the villain that it, that it ended up not working very well. Uh, and I thought the villains in Quantum of Solace were just straight up crap. Um, this one, the villain wasn't great, but it didn't ruin the film for me. I still enjoyed it. Um, there was one interesting comment about this. I think it's not from me, but other people have been commenting about it. It says, there is like a bit of a group of people who, you know, there's lots of people out there who for no fault of their own happen to have a scar on their face, right? Um, and they're a little bit annoyed that, you know, it's like Hollywood shorthand that the villain has to have a scar and that having a scar or being <clears throat> facially scarred in some way is shorthand for you must be a bad person and someone with a scar can never be the good guy, they can never be the love interest, they're always like the the, the crazy psycho. Um, and they kind of did comment that, look, can you just can you not just be so lazy in future please is it you know because it it, it does actually affect your life if people people are so used to seeing someone who is a scar and just start to make negative um you know uh, stereotypes about them and, and it's all the more ironic because in the original bond books uh, James bond has a scar okay. and they decided to cut that out for the films because they because i think the films actually you know to begin with were rather less uh you know substantial than than the stories that they were based on and said well no we just want a straight-up good-looking bond hero no scars because you know a hero can't have a scar which is part of the problem right um right. and I, I thought it was interesting that that comment's been raised and you know they're not trying to cancel anyone they just kind of politely said do you mind being a bit less lazy in the future i thought it was, it was yeah. worth thinking about it was worth raising um so what else you you say you say you saw the last Duel. I saw that too. I really liked it. Really good.
0: Yeah. I wouldn't. I, really really well, yeah. I wouldn't would say liked was the correct word. It's a very dark story. And it's a bit of a. It's a bit of a kind of low kind of atmosphere because it's talking about such a sensitive issue. But it's important that we do talk about those kind of yeah. issues. And, it's a very, uh, it's a very dark
1: story. Um, yeah, while it's a medieval drama about a true, true events that took place in the 14th century, I think the story and the way they've done the story is quite timely, given me too and the, the recent discussions that have been going on in the world. It's a, it's a shame that a story from 1386
0: is relevant in 2021.
1: Yeah, quite, um, quite. <laughs> there was some, there were, there were some scenes in there, aren't they? Like when, because you know, for the benefit of your people who haven't seen it, the story revolves around a woman who reports that she was raped, and back then you know the, the way those cases were dealt with were you know very you know very medieval um and the person that she was uh, making the complaint against was favored by you know the king's cousin it wouldn't be easy to to have a, a straight up court case about it um so her husband uh asks for trial by combat and it's the last time that trial by combat was used to settle a case uh, and in a trial by combat the, the person who is making the complaint or well the husband who's making the complaint on his wife's behalf because the wife has no legal standing and and the the defendant um fight to the death and whoever wins uh basically it's God's will and they were telling the truth, right? Uh and it and if if Jody Comer's husband loses the fight, um, she gets burned at the stake for telling lies. Uh so it was it's just kind of yeah, it's pretty pretty barbaric world that they were living in but there's bits where they're holding the trial and they're asking questions about you know did she provoke him and there's a line where someone says well if you don't well they don't use the word orgasm but you know it's, it's what they're talking if about you don't, if you don't enjoy it then you can't get pregnant that's just yeah. science and that is actually that came out of the mouth of a republican politician two or three years ago um so it's crazy how you know obviously the way rape cases are, are tried in in the modern era have, have moved on considerably from that time but there were still some very worrying things going on now which as you say made the story a lot more relevant than a civilized society should be comfortable with yeah um, i thought it was really good and the the, the structure of it's really interesting because they they borrowed a little bit from Kurosawa's Rashomon where they go over the events um from the three you know so they tell the story from the viewpoint of Matt Damon's character the husband and then from the point of view of the defendant played by Adam Driver and then you get Jodie Comer's version which kind of puts a very different complexion on what you've been told previously and i thought that was very good as well
0: but not just about the accused Adam Driver about her husband as well,
1: yes, yeah, and it's, her life and everything. Yeah,
0: that's what I said because I went to see with my girlfriend. I said the bit, and the bit that was you know not more like most enjoyable, but the most important part of it is that they tell Jodie Comer, or they tell the, the story of the, the woman last, and they basically I know it's a bit of a spoiler, but they basically say. It says the truth according to Jean de Carouge, which is Matt Damon, and then the truth according to Jacques Legree, which is Adam Driver, and then yep. it's the truth according to uh, Marguerite uh, de Carouge or something like that. De Carouge, Marguerite de Carouge. Yeah. And then it just... Everything fades all, out apart from, apart the, word, from the, the the words truth. the truth. Yeah. And then the story is that, you know, Matt Damon's trying to kid himself on that he's a man of honor and he loves his wife very much. Blah blah blah. <clears throat> and it's not like, quite that simple, a, is it? A, he's been a prick because it's 1386 and men were pricks back then, and men can still be pricks now. Um, and then, um, then she tells the story. Well, then it tells the story of Adam Drivers, uh, Jacques Legree, and he's saying that oh no, she was leading me on, et cetera. And you know it was it was she was kidding on that she didn't want to, but she did, etc. And yeah. then when
1: it's Then when you see what really happened from her point of view, it really, it's. I I thought what was really good was a lot of the a lot of the differences in the versions of the story were were quite subtle, but they were important and they mount up. Do you know what I mean? And it builds a very different picture of why Mac Damon's character is not in favor in court and the kind of difficult person that he is, and you know, and the way a lot of the stuff about Jodie Comer's character, Marguerite, you say it's like some some of the stuff that you see is you see a conversation between Matt Damon and Adam Driver from two angles. And then you find out a whole lot of stuff about Jodie Comer that wasn't in the previous versions of the story because they just weren't thinking about her, were they? Uh, I thought that was really interesting. And, but um,
0: the the bit that I was uh, sorry trying to talk about was that basically after, um, after Jodie Comer tells Matt Damon that um, his best friend um, has raped her, his reaction um, completely different. Well, hey, so the way he says sh- it is, her husband's reaction is, "That's terrible. Who's done this? You know, we must, you know, must deal with this, etc. We're going to get this. We're going to fight for, you know, fight for justice, etc. And yeah. then in the actual version, he gets angry. He grabs her by the throat and says, "Are you telling me the truth? Uh, why does he do this to me? Yeah, you know, not thinking yeah. about his wife. Yeah, and then, um, but this woman's just confessed her husband that she was brutally raped by by adam driver and then matt damon's character goes oh well he can't be the last person to have sex with you so i need to have sex with you right now that's yeah. what happens in the film yeah.
1: it's a spoiler but that's yeah i mean it, it it is and it isn't because i think the real the real kind of plot spoiler would be telling you how the whole thing ends which yeah. which we're not going to do um yeah it's really well done i think they did they did a nice uh they did a nice job of the script matt damon and ben affleck um worked with Uh, a female writer, Nicole Hofstetter, so that all of the the different perspectives on the story were, you know, got, you know, were done justice. And Ridley Scott, um, he really sinks his teeth into this story. He's been trying to do the definitive, or his definitive version of medieval life and knights and chivalry um, for a long time, and he really does it here because he he gets a story that, that enables him to tell the story about knights and chivalry from all angles, you know, including some very negative aspects of that, and what life was like back then, and he really builds the world. He he tells the story. He directs the the nuances of the story very well. But what he also does is he makes sure that the medieval world that their the story's taking place in is really brought to life, isn't it? So that dirty tracks, candlelit castles you know, people having to sweep geese out of the way as there's the horses come rushing past. You really feel like that that world has come to life. So I think everyone brought what they needed to to the film, and I was I really I really enjoyed it. I thought I say enjoy is not the right word because some of it's really quite well, brutal, but no, it's a, but it's a very very, very good film.
0: So, you, once it, you get Would you get over the accents? That, Matt Damon and Ben Affick give good performances in terms of their character, but their their accent just doesn't quite. There are a hit, few. There are but, a few
1: wobbly accents, aren't there? Yeah, I agree. Expected. I thought I thought it was a, I thought it was a good film. I, I really enjoyed it. Certainly, um, you know, in our previous episode we talked about how, um, or a previous episode we talked about, you know, Ridley Scott being someone that we absolutely love when he gets it right, um, and but when he gets it wrong, it can be really terrible. I think he's, this is definitely one where he gets it right. Well, it's
0: one of his best films for me. Um, yeah,
1: I mean, I would, I would I would definitely have it up there, and I think it's just a good example of when when Ridley Scott's made a bad film or a film I don't like. I've never ever said the words that could have been good, but Ridley Scott fucked it up. Do you know what I mean? It's always, it's always been, been a flawed idea. Yeah. When you've got a good idea, a good script, and a film that's got every potential to be good film, he never fucking lets you down. Where he lets you down is picking the wrong film to make, and he didn't do that this time, so fair play to him.
0: Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty much my films watched, and obviously because that's I, my resolution, that's my yeah. resolution for the month. I absolutely battered out some films this yeah. month. So what about you? How did you get on with your one?
1: Well obviously we talked about No Time to Die what I watched and we talked about um uh the last jewel which I watched it was nice it was nice for us to be able to talk about films we both seen at the cinema um, the other film I went to see at the cinema was The Green Knight. Oh I and this tried it a watch couple of weeks back. Yeah and I, I bet you I bet you streamed it at home right? Uh yeah just on Prime. This is this is a film that you just have to watch at the cinema. It just is. Okay. Um but what I, what I'll say is right I mean, give a bit of background to it for the the people listening. This is based on one of the old tales of King Arthur's court, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Um, It's set at a time when a lot of the heroic tales of um, uh, King Arthur have already taken place. You know, Sir Lancelot, Percival, you know, maybe even the quest you know, the Holy Grail's already been and gone. Um, King Arthur's getting old, the court's getting old, and there's almost nothing left to do except tell stories of previous bravery. Now, young Gawain... Is a is a a new you know would be knight. His mother is very ambitious for him. In this version of the story, it's Morgan le Fay who is Arthur's half sister and adversary is his mother, and she's very ambitious for him to be a, a heroic knight with his own great tale. But there's no there's no quest, there's no battles, there's nothing left to fight. So he's a bit of a waster, drinking and you know just you know spending time with his lowborn girlfriend in a brothel instead of you know going out and trying to be a hero. And in right. this story, a. a, a a situation is created partly by his mother where he has to go on a quest and prove himself a hero and it's almost as if the court is dying and decaying and needs a new hero and needs some new blood Um, and it concerns a supernatural figure called the green knight who invites goes turns up on christmas and says let's play a game one of your knights can have a swipe at me with their sword um they can just have a free hit but in a year's time I I get to come, you, you know, you got, you have to come to my place and I have to do the same free hits at you. Sir Gawain leaps over the table, has a go. He's actually a sir at that point. He he dives up and uh, he swings his sword and cuts the knight's head off, thinking, oh, well, there you go. That You know, try, try doing that to me in a year's time. And the green knight suddenly stands up and puts his head back on his shoulders and says, great, see you in a year. <laughs> and Gawain has to face up to the fact that um, he's got to go there um, and he goes off on this strange quest and it's all about um, the fact that the pagan world is still kind of there, the magic of the pagan world and giants and other strange phenomena are still around even though they're trying to build a, a Christian world. Um, and he goes through what might be a dream, what might be a hallucination, but eventually has to face the Green Knight and he has to face up to um, you know, the possibility of his own death. And I thought it was absolutely brilliant. I thought it was an absolutely magnificent piece of cinema, the way it builds mood and the way it kind of creates this strange world. It's the best, for me, the best film based on King Arthur apart from John Borman's Excalibur. But what I would say is two things. One, you have to watch it at the cinema because you really have to concentrate and you really need to be in an, you know, an enclosed bit—an enclosed space with a massive screen showing you what's going on. But also, it is one of those films. You look at the reviews, it averages six out of 10 on IMDb because everyone did giving given it 10 out of 10 or two out of 10. Because the people are probably
0: the people who have watched it in the cinema and the people that have watched it at home.
1: Maybe, but I think it's just a matter of taste. Some people are just going to see it and not like it, and their views are entirely valid. It's a very specific kind of film. It's, it's, it's got a relatively stately pace, and a lot of stuff happens that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, but if you think about it, it does. Um, but if that's not for you, then you're not going to like it, and it's not your fault. Do you know what I mean? It really is one of those films that you're either going to love or hate. So I absolutely loved it. I think it's the best film I've seen this year, best new film I've seen this year. But your mileage may vary.
0: I thought The Last Duel was better than what I've seen from The Green Knight. I've just got to finish it, basically. But from what I've seen, I think The Last Duel was miles better. Um, And
1: and you may may well think that even if you went to the cinema and kind of turned your phone off and all of that stuff, because some people just haven't haven't got on with that story. I thought it was an absolutely magnificent piece of cinema. It's one of the best films I've seen in a very long time. And I'm saying that to someone who really liked The Last Duel as well. Um, but I do know that plenty of people haven't liked it, and I'm not. I'm not going to suggest for one second those people didn't get it or anything like that. This is just one of those films. You are either going to absolutely love it or look at it and go, "What the fuck is that?" No, it's just I'll, one of those I'll, films.
0: I'll finish it, and we'll, we can maybe discuss it on the next episode or sure. whatever. But um, sure, yeah, I've I've not hated what I've seen so far. I've found it quite intriguing. So
1: yeah, um, yeah, we'll see how it goes. So my my resolution you've done yours which was just try and watch more films and less TV. Um, my resolution was to watch an old favourite the first time, and this is um, the one I chose to watch is AI artificial intelligence, um, Steven okay. Spielberg's film from two thousand and one, um, based on Kubrick's idea. And the reason I wanted to watch was is I really didn't like it the first time. I was really um, disappointed by it, uh, but a lot of people have said give it another go. You might you know you might like it better having had time to think about it. Um, so I decided to sit down and watch it again. It's um, Stanley Kubrick had been working on this idea for almost twenty years. Um, it was his idea to do a kind of a, almost a bleak sci-fi um, update of the story of Pinocchio about a, an intelligent android boy who wants to be a real boy and, and can't, um, and it follows his journey through a very kind of uh, dystopian future where people are you know unable to you know unable to have children and <clears throat> have these robot children and then you know. It doesn't work out because it's only a robot and people treat them like they're disposable the way they treat anything else that's a machine. Um, At the time, a lot of people thought, well, Kubrick's died, so Spielberg's tried to have a go at this and he's tried to do his version of a Kubrick film and it doesn't work. Interestingly, if you read up on it, this was actually always Kubrick's idea of a Spielberg film. It was the other way around. And he actually wanted Spielberg to direct it in the first place, um, but the special effects were never. Back in the eighties, were never gonna gonna achieve it, so they decided to, to do it. But you know, Kubrick died, and it was his it was Kubrick's kind of dying wish that Spielberg complete this film. So right. I think what Spielberg did was very much what Kubrick intended. Um, I have to say, I uh, I liked it a lot better this time. Okay, it still it still treads kind of similar um, similar territory to things like Blade Runner, uh, and I think Blade Runner does it better. But I still think this did a really good job, and I actually. Um, I have to say that I I now put this in, in this last sort of 20 year period, this late era um, Spielberg, you know, not as a, you know, everything after Saving Private Ryan, basically, right? His late career. I think this is one of the best films of that, of that era. I, I, I really liked it. Um, I think visually it's quite impressive. I think it's um, Hayley Joel Osmond's performance worked a lot better for me this time. I wasn't keen on it at that time, but this time I thought it was really good. There's a, there's a really important bit where, He sees another version of himself because he's basically just a production line android, and he sees it and he thinks it's a rival for the love of his human mother, and he just looks at it and says really silently, really quietly, almost hissing, "You can't have her," and then he destroys the droid with his bare hands because he's just so desperate for the love of his human mother. And I thought, wow, actually, that actually works really well. Right. Um, So I thought it was what. What's interesting about it is that um, Kubrick's world that he's trying to build is the idea that we just abuse technology and we don't have as much humanity as we we like to think we have and it's quite tragic that these robots are trying to feel love and humanity when they can't but deep down because Kubrick was a bit of a misanthrope he's kind of saying that a lot of humans are no better than that but Spielberg took that story and he did that story justice but because he's Spielberg he really committed to the storyline of that boy who keeps searching for love and humanity no matter what Right. And Spielberg can do that bit. And I, I thought it was really, really good. And I thought it um, it worked a lot better this time. I'm glad I revisited it.
0: Not very good. I've, I've never seen it. It's one of those films I just couldn't be arsed with. I just, it, I'd I say just, it's
1: worth a watch.
0: Yeah. Uh, it's, I, I know when it, when it comes to people what I like and what I don't like. And I tend to not really like his sci-fi stuff. I prefer his historical kind of stuff. I didn't like Ready Player One. I didn't like... Um, Minority like? Report. Uh, suppose when I'm talking about sci-fi, I suppose I quite like Minority Report. So uh, I suppose that's the one sci-fi film because that I like. But I really didn't like ET either. Mm. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Maybe I'm thinking of it as more of like a kind of ET thing as opposed to a Minority Report
1: kind of thing. So this has got more Kubrick in it than you than 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 you might imagine. Um, but again, again, Spielberg has a definite sensibility where, where the way he makes films, and if. If if you don't feel if it, if his sci fi version of that doesn't work for you maybe this won't maybe this won't cross that barrier do you know what I mean yeah but yeah I mean I, I really liked it and the whole point of watching these old films is sometimes to just watch something you haven't you haven't seen in years you know yeah just because you you know that's a good film you should watch again and sometimes it's to give something another go I'm personally glad I did that it might not work for other people um, my other resolution uh, for this month was part of my ongoing project to make 2021 the year of the carpenter. Um, and the film I watched this month is Assault on Precinct 13 because I'm watching these films in ascending order of how highly rated they are uh, on IMDb. We're now in October. This is the you know the third highest rated of all of John Carpenter's films. Um, it was made in 1976. Uh, it was a, an unofficial remake or inspired by the the, the basic storyline of an old Howard Hawks western called Rio Bravo. Um, you know, it's an interesting look at what you can do with a remake, which is why we're looking at the remake of this film uh, for our Hate Watch this month. Um, It's interesting because John Carpenter was a big Western fan, but he didn't have the money to make a Western because you've got to have period settings and costumes and everything. That costs money. He only had $100,000, so he decided to take a lot of his Western ideas and his love of Howard Hawks films and transplant it into an urban thriller. It's essentially a siege film where... um, there's a, a, an, an escalating conflict between the police and L.A. gangs, which has resulted in one L.A. gang decided they've had enough and they're going to attack a police precinct. And, but, but first, they go on a, a bit of a, a killing rampage. They've just decided, you know, they're sick of being, you know, just executed in the street by the police, so they're going to go, kind of get, come back. But they're, you know, they're violent. They're, there's no suggestion that this gang is justified. They're just a, it's just an escalating conflict, and this gang are really violent. And they kill the child which is a pretty shocking kind of start to the film. Uh, and the the father of that child just loses his mind, gets a gun from from somewhere and shoots the leader of the gang and then takes refuge in a, pre, a police precinct that's about to close down. They're about to move the whole precinct to a, to a new one. So there's only three people or so in the in the precinct and the gang descend on this to kill the guy who killed their their compadre. Um, <clears throat> and at the same time, a busload of convicts is kind of dumped there or a few convicts are dumped there because one of them's ill and they get in the cell. So you've got this mixture of off duty, you know, policemen who suddenly have to get involved in a fight, you know, the secretaries who work in the police station and a couple of um a couple of convicts who they're not sure they can trust have got to fight a fight a mass gang of uh, of 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 criminals who've decided to just wipe everyone out as some sort of statement against the police. And it's a siege drama and it's got kind of western kind of the characters have got almost like western um, style to them, which Americans weren't that keen on because they'd seen a lot of westerns at the time. But Europe loved it. Europe went, "Oh, great!" An an urban drama siege film, but with western touches. I love that. And it was uh, it was the start of John Carpenter's career. Um, as uh, as as well as that, it's um it's definitely influenced by Night of the Living Dead, which is a film that uh, John Carpenter loved. Another sort of fun fact for you for you nerds out there: the uh, the character Romero in Escape from New York, is inspired by George Romero, who directed Night of the Living Dead. There's a few little touches like that in, in Carpenter's films. So this is where John Carpenter really got started. This is his professional debut after Dark Star, and it's an absolutely amazing piece of work. It's one of the first films that has one of his classic theme tunes in it uh, that really builds atmosphere. Um, there's just this relentless pace to the, you know, the, the, the people attacking the... Um, uh, the, the precinct. There's some beautiful touches like they're using silences, so no one out no one outside can hear the shots. So they're really stuck in on their own. And actually, inside the precinct, these high-powered rifles with silences that these gang members have managed to get hold of, they're not making any sound. So instead of hearing a gunshot, you just hear glass breaking and then things are getting blown up and shot up on the counter of the uh, 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 of the um, uh, of the precinct, which is really atmospheric. And you've got this great relationship between the, the one of the women who works in the police station, who's really, she's like a, a very classic Howard Hawks style heroine that John Carpenter liked the idea of. You've got the, um, the the tough cop or but but decent cop who's fighting back, uh, and relatively unusually for 1976, the hero of the film is black, and the convict who is a very stylish kind of enigmatic character is white, and this kind of rapport builds up between those three characters as they essentially fight for survival. Um, it's a really tremendous piece of work. It's an absolute action and suspense classic. Um, I'm just glad I revisited because I love this movie. Um, so I would definitely, um, recommend anyone else watch the same film. Um, couple of fun facts. You've got, um, uh, the, the little girl in this who gets killed is called Kim Richards. Her younger sister, Kyle Richards played one of the children being babysat in John Carpenter's next film, Halloween. Um, so it was a bit of a family affair at that time. Um, and this is a classic example of John Carpenter using his influences to make a really interesting new film, and he was very good at that, putting a new spin on films he was influenced by. In honour of this being John Carpenter's debut and where he shut off all his influences and really made a splash, um, I've decided to make our impromptu top ten John Carpenter's um, favourite films that influenced um, his his filmmaking. Um, this is a list made up of an explicit list of five films he said were his favourites, but other films which, you know, if you know John Carpenter, you know a big... Uh, Big, you know, big influences on him. So this impromptu top ten to just kind of show you where John Carpenter's is coming from: uh, Citizen Kane, Rio Bravo, Vertigo, Blow Up, Only Angels Have Wings, uh, The Thing from Another World, The Quatermass Experiment, Night of the Living Dead, The Wild Bunch, and Forbidden Planet. So if you like John Carpenter and you want to know where his his style came from, that would be that list of ten films would be a great place to start. Um, so that's the, that's the year of the carpenter entry for this month. Uh, next month it's Halloween, which I think everyone uh, listening will know all about. But I'm going to be doing that uh, next month. Uh, and that's the roundup for this month. now for the classics and recommended feature where we try and watch something from our backlog of great films instead of the endless movie repeats rotating on tv our watch list includes films one or both of us hasn't seen before and recommendations from you the audience committing to do so for this feature has helped break the mental block around some of these films i mean we got to see and share our thoughts on a wide range of films from scorsese's gangster classic casino to groundbreaking police thriller the french connection We have a growing list of other films to do for this feature as we keep adding films we haven't seen yet and from the steady stream of audience recommendations including Wages of Fear Inherent Vice The Assassin 25th Hour Departures Short Bus A Tale of Two Sisters The City of Lost Children A Royal Affair Under the Skin Primer Alphaville Boyhood The Good, The Bad, The Weird In Order of Disappearance No Way Out Mississippi Burning Eve's Bayou Sea of Love, Zed, Touch of Evil, and The Hitchhiker. That really is a long list. This month we're discussing a suspenseful political thriller from Kevin Costner's eighties heyday, which James hasn't seen before. Our classics and recommended feature for episode eighteen is No Way Out. So, yeah, James, you you hadn't seen this before, had you? This is this just isn't in you know. I think I don't think this is shown on TV that much. It's just not part of your kind yeah. Of life I think it's or one era. of those
0: things. It's one of those things where it was a popular film at the time because it was Kevin Costner's heyday, but it's one of those films that kind of get lost because they've not been kind of signed up to any subscription service.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, um, so for a bit of background, this is the third adaptation of a novel called The Big Clock, which was like a noirish crime thriller from the 1940s. The first version was a very faithful adaptation of the book in 1946 starring Ray Milland. The original story is about a crime journalist who is framed for the murder of, of his boss's mistress, um, and he's in trouble about that because he was also having an affair with her. Um, A French film version was made of the same story in the 70s where they take the same basic plot line and update it to a contemporary police department in France. Uh, This version was made in 1987 and is set in the political and military intelligence community in in Washington, D.C. I think the reason why it kind of works as a remake is they didn't just try and remake the original book or or film. They said that basic storyline, that's quite interesting, that would work in this other setting. Do you know what I mean? And in this one, it's in the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. at the height of the Cold War. Kevin Costner is Tom Farrell. He's a decorated naval officer with an intelligence background. His old friend, Scott Pritchard, recruits him to work for the Secretary of Defense, his boss. Um, Officially, he's a liaison, but Gene Hackman, who plays Bryce, the boss, actually wants someone to um, help gather information on other departments in Washington and help him kind of maneuver, get his proposals through and so on. Um, Costner meets and falls for a woman called Susan Atwell at a DC function. Uh, they start a relationship. He's aware she's the mistress of a married man, but not um, not, no, not sure who that is. He finds out that actually it's Bryce's boss. So he's having an affair with his boss's mistress. Um, Bryce suspects that um, his mistress is seeing someone else and in a fit of jealous rage, he hits her and she you know falls and dies. Um, he's losing his mind over this. Pritchett, who is the, the kind of one of those faithful assistants who'll do anything for his boss, decides to help him cover it up. So Gene Hackman's kind of uh, sort of minion is going to cover this up. What they're going to do is they're going to claim that she was murdered by a Russian sleeper a- agent. There's always been a theory that this sleeper agent nicknamed Yuri has been around Washington. And if they blame it on him, they can uh, covertly investigate who the other, the other um, man that, the, that Susan was seeing was. Blame it on him, essentially have him killed because he's a spy. And they don't have to involve the police. They don't have to like tell the media what's going on under cover of national security. They go to Kevin Costner, who works for them, and ask him to investigate and help them do it. So Kevin Costner is stuck investigating himself, knowing that he could be, you know, ex- you know, accused of being a spy and essentially taken out and killed. Uh, and so he's got to find a way of, you know, looking like he's doing his job, but not uh, not actually getting himself killed in the process. So that's kind of the the, the storyline that sets up this kind of thriller engine for for them to build a film around. Uh, I watched this when I was a a kid. It was one of those home video staples. I really enjoyed it. Um, I wasn't sure what you would think of it, mate, but I thought it would be interesting to take a a classic film of the 80s, not to say a classic of the 80s, but a a typical example of great, you know, a good 80s film and see how it plays to a a younger audience that's just never, you know, never been exposed to it before.
0: Um, Yeah, I thought it was was okay. I didn't think it was terrible. Um, I know I usually have a different opinion to the film that's a classic because it's... It's from a different era and it's a different style of cinema. Um, I can understand why some people didn't actually like this film because it does throw a lot of information at you. It's almost like a puzzle that you've got to kind of solve yourself. Yeah. Um, Which I didn't actually mind because I do like it when a director has a lot of kind of guts to kind of give you all the information yourself and you've got to try and figure it out yourself. But I can also understand why people might think they're just being given lots of information and lots of exposition um, and not be really... Not being spoon fed it, because I know you don't sometimes folks just want to go to the cinema and kinda or watch a film and just kinda relax, but when you've actually got to think about it, some people might not get it. Um but no, I thought it was good. I thought it was a good performance from Kevin Costner. It was very different from the um the stuff I've seen him in before. It's different to um the Untouchables, where he's basically meant to play this um
1: Like a Crusader.
0: Yeah, this kinda this guy who's like, you know uh, he's like, you know, you know, squeaky clean uh, out of the FBI. Not the FBI. Was it the FBI? Man? He was a Treasury oh. agent. Yeah, Treasury agent. Um, squeaky clean. Um, kind of guy compared to this, where he's a bit more complex. He's got, he's a hero, but his, his life kind of starts to unravel around mm-hmm. him. Yeah, as opposed to what what I've seen him in before. No, I didn't. I didn't hate it.
1: Well, that's good. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you liked it. It's it's quite interesting because it's uh, it's funny. Basically, most of the kind of crew and directors and uh, and writer and people involved in the film they're kind of journeymen, and none of them have done anything that, um. Uh, impressive or successful apart from this this was just one of those occasions where they all came together it was an interesting idea for a film they managed to get an a-list you know a good budget and a-list cast and Stanley Kubrick cinematographer and and they managed to make this very glossy thriller and all the elements kind of clicked and Kevin Costner was like becoming a huge star at this time the Untouchables had already come out that was huge he was he was just the leading man that people wanted I mean <clears throat> I think th- you know the biggest star at the time was Tom Cruise and I think 'Cause he, he was a little bit more of like a youth actor at the time, Tom Cruise. It's almost like Kevin Costner's was Tom Cruise for grown ups at this point. Right. So he's got he's he's young, he's good looking, he's in a navy uniform, but it's there's something more murky going underneath. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, um, yeah and I I mean I I mean, obviously really like this film. I thought it was one of those things where he, you know, as the story progresses, the tension cranks up. There's, you know, something else happens that gets him more and more in deep in, you know, deep in the shit, and he's got to find a way out of it. And it kind of cranks up and cranks up and cranks up. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it still stands up because it's not that '80s in style. A lot of '80s films are very kind of, do you know what I mean? They they date very quickly. But I think because this was almost, while it was set in the '80s and and has a lot of Cold War trappings, which do you know tell you when it took place. You know, it's not. You know it's not full of people in kind of wild 80s costumes like a lot of um you know John Hughes films from that era do date a little bit this this manages not to because it's almost more of a classic film noir um there's a little one or two bits of technology which were a bit out, out, outdated today but otherwise I thought it was just a you know it was it was a good old-fashioned kind of twisty thriller wasn't it yeah no it was it's
0: it, I don't know if it'd be something that I'd recommend for you to casually watch you do have to kind of pay attention to it you can't mm-hmm. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just you have to be in the mood for for a film like that. Yeah, it's
1: quite it's quite a murky, twisty thriller. And the thing is, plot twist you know a a plot twist only really works if you've been really paying attention. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I think it's definitely one of those ones where um, it's never gonna it's never gonna work the same when it's not coming out at that time to that audience for who it's aimed at. But I think thinking about it, this film came out in 1987, so this is like me watching a film from the and the late fifties, early sixties, or something. Do you know what I mean? And it's like it's sometimes go. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. That's good for its time, kind of thing. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, no, I agree. It wasn't 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 bad at all.
1: Okay, so that that's no way out, everyone. And and as we always say on this on this podcast, we do hope that this classic uh, feature m- might make you go and watch the film we've talked about. But what this is also about is saying, you know, that's a film that you've not seen, that you've not got around to watching. And it's about just sitting down to watch it Um, because even if it's not the greatest film in the world or even if it's not the film other people have described to you, the very act of saying I'm going to sit down, I'm going to watch this and experience something I've not experienced before is better than just watching the same old thing. And I hope this inspires you to start digging into your own um, list of unwatched films. And now for the hidden gem feature about a film that is not as well-known or as appreciated as it deserves to be. We aim to bring an overlooked and underrated film to your attention and say why this deserved to have more critical or commercial success than it got and why you should watch it or re-evaluate it. This month we're discussing a landmark film drama from Saudi Arabia which received great critical acclaim but wasn't widely seen. The hidden gem for episode 18 is Wajah. So again, a quick bit of background. Uh, Wajah came out in 2012. It was the feature debut of writer-director Haifa al Mansour, a Saudi Arabian woman who was only able to watch films on video growing up because cinemas were closed and outlawed between 1983 to 2018 in Saudi Arabia. So that means that you weren't even allowed to go and see films at the cinema when this film was being made. Um, It concerns the titular central character Wajah, a 10-year-old girl who lives with her mother and yearns to own a bicycle she's seen on sale in a local shop. It also tells the story of her life as basically a second-class citizen with her mother, her father who seems to love her but is about to take a second wife so that he can have a son. Um, And this was my recommendation to you, James, because I watched it when it came out and really liked it and I thought this was worth discussing as a hidden gem. So I'll throw it open to you and and say, you know, did you know about this film before I recommended it to you? No, not at all. Never heard of it. Had never heard of
0: it and, um, yeah. So what did you think? Yeah, um, Yeah, it's... It's an uplifting story, but in a, in a way that still highlights all the problems that society has.
1: Yeah. That,
0: that, you know, that Riyadh and Saudi Arabia tends to have. So it's like, you know, there's obviously issues that, that the mum doesn't want to buy her the bike because it's going to cost so much money and, you know, girls don't ride bikes. It's a boys thing. And the only reason that she gets the bike is because, you know, the, the mum decided to buy the bike for her. Uh, after the um, after her husband takes a new wife, and it's kind of like a heartwarming moment where the 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 mum and the daughter have a nice kind of cuddle, and like the mum's done something nice for the daughter because you know it's obviously a tough time for the daughter seeing that her dad wants to marry this other guy because he's a uh, he's desperately wanting a son. So it's it's like oh that's a nice woman. She's now getting to ride, ride her bike and race against her pal. I can't remember the pal's name, but she wants to race against her, yeah. her um, pal in the street. So it's nice that she gets to ride the bike and things like that. But it highlights so many problems, you know. The I must marry again so I can have another wife, and um, there's the bit with the
1: he doesn't even have to. He doesn't have to divorce his first wife. He just gets married to another. Yeah, uh, yeah. and then
0: reciting the. Um, quran to try and win the money to try and save it and then the money gets donated to
1: because they to the don't approve and, of what she's going to spend the money yeah, on
0: yeah. so it's it's a weird one and i, I think it's, it's obviously been done that way on purpose to kind of like you know point out all the the problems that saudi arabia still has um and not that we're biased or anything as newcastle fans but the saudi arabian government are a bunch of um we're a bunch of are a bunch of cunts. Um, not yeah. Newcastle fans. Sorry, we're Sunderland we're fans and hate um, this this takeover. But I don't particularly hate it. I just think it's a bit shady. And this film kind of highlights all the problem problems that Newcastle's owners uh, seem to. Well, kind of I perpetuate. mean the, the
1: Saudi the Saudi Arabian regime is famous for all sorts of atrocities, um, such as funding terrorism, killing uh, journalists, killing journalists, human rights violations. So then putting money into Newcastle United is pretty on brand for them. Um, but for. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I thought what was really interesting was two things. One, the director doesn't beat you over the head with the story. Essentially, she just tells the story of a girl who really wants to buy a bike and it's going to take some work for her to find the money to buy the bike. And the reason yeah. the story is as powerful as it is, is just because of where it's happening. And she doesn't have to say, and this is bad and that is happening. She says, well, I'm just going to tell you the story of a girl who wants to buy a bike. And it just so happens that because of the world that that's taking place in, um, that 's a much bigger story than it otherwise would have been, and also the fact that a woman is making a film about this about a girl and her troubles is a is a is a big story in itself because it 's happening in saudi arabia and i I thought she 's very good at just telling that story um because the the power of the drama kind of it, that that story tells itself doesn 't it because it 's happening in Saudi Arabia because she doesn 't have to she doesn 't have to be very like she doesn't have to be like really unsubtle and kind of make big dramatic points. You just because it's happening in Saudi Arabia, you automatically go, "Oh shit!" You know this is going to be hard. Yeah. And, and and then when when the story kind of moves forward in the way that it does, it has a lot of emotional impact just because of all of that. You know.
0: No, I agree. It was it was it was a very good film. It highlights lots of problems, and I think it hits harder because Saudi Arabia is such a backwards country.
1: Um, yeah. At the same time, though, I thought it was very interesting that, that because they. She didn't caricature any of the people involved in it. Do you know what I mean? These are just people, and this is the world they live in. Yeah. This is what they've been brought up to think. Um, and you know that the guy who owns the bike in the shop, you know, doesn't refuse to sell her the bike because he's because he agrees and hates girls. That's just the way it is, you know. But uh, there's there's some also very interesting touches. They don't approve of girls riding bikes, but it's not actually illegal, right? And if they don't want girls to ride bikes, why do they sell girls' bikes? Because it's a girl's bike. Yeah. And um, some people are decent and some people aren't. And even the people who aren't decent, they're not, they're not monsters. I just thought she's done a really good job of just telling you what life's like there. She just said, look, this is what it's like. There's good and bad everywhere. There's good and bad things about people. Um, you know, the, there's no one kind of standing there screaming and kind of being a, you know, this represents everything that we find evil about Saudi Arabia for the benefit of a Western audience. She's just telling a story. And I thought it's all the more powerful for that, for being very kind of truthful and believable about the day-to-day life of the people involved.
0: Yeah. No, it was, again, another one of those films, that if you have time to watch it, it's an interesting angle and it kind of sheds some insight into a country that doesn't really get a lot of exposure unless they're, they're obviously in the news because of yeah. football club takeovers or yeah. journalist killings. So it's... It, gives you a different angle.
1: Um, yeah, and I think it was... What I really liked about it as well is that the way the bike becomes this kind of very powerful object of desire, you know?
0: Yeah.
1: At, at its heart, it's just about a girl who wants a bike. That's not very dramatic, but we all know why it's a dramatic story. We all know why it's a, a story worth telling. Yeah. And the, when she sees the bike and she dreams of having the bike and, you know, when she borrows her friend's bike and wishes she, you know, wishes she had one of her own, it just... When a film... When a film makes an object like that as you say an object of desire something that really they really really want and the whole story revolves around that thing that object becomes so powerful so it's um, it's, it's, it's it's quite it's quite an enticing story because of that and the little girl is great playing waji I thought she does a great job um there's some really I mean, there's amazing facts she um she the, the director Al Mansell. She had to sit in a van and talk on a walkie-talkie because if you're filming out on the street, people would have really disapproved of her standing around with a bunch of men talking to them. So, was it was
0: filmed in Saudi Arabia.
1: It was the first film ever to be filmed in Saudi Arabia.
0: But they couldn't show it in the fucking cinema.
1: Couldn't show it in the cinema.
0: What a fucking bizarre country. But that's
1: the thing. She does a really good job of just going, this is a normal story. That girl wants to ride a bike. Why can't she ride a bike? And she manages to show a lot of what's happening up as completely absurd because by not... Not by standing up and going, this is absurd. It's a a great message for anyone who wants to be an activist of any kind. Because just showing people why this is ridiculous is one of the most powerful things you can do. Why can't the girl go and ride that bike? Yeah. And and, I, and I, th- I thought that was what was so powerful about the film—the fact that she was making a film—and even when you know, and I had to sit in a van, right? And because she's a woman, they—they, they, it's not actually illegal for her to do it, but they make it really difficult for her to do it because of all of their social conventions. And then when she makes the film, Saudi Arabia made it their entry for um for best foreign film at the Oscars.
0: But she had to sit in a van to fucking film the film.
1: And 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 I think that that is that's the greatest power of the film because she just says, if if it wasn't for all the shit that you have going on this would be just a simple story of a girl riding a bike and all of this um prejudice discrimination backward thinking is what makes this a story and i thought that was very that was very clever she she's um she's done a couple of things like that one of her more recent films is about a woman being a candidate for political office in uh, in saudi arabia and why that is complicated just because she's a woman and again she doesn't beat you over the head with a message she just kind of she creates a story that completely sets the cat among the pigeons and shows you what what's happening in that in that country so she's yeah. very clever for doing that so yeah so that that's our hidden gem and we're both giving that a recommendation it's um it's probably not something that people have you know immediately gone out to but it's it's widely available at the moment and if you know as long as you don't mind watching some subtitles i think you'll really get a lot out of this film Now for the one that got away, where we dig deeper into cinematic history for stories of potentially great films that top directors tried and failed to bring to the screen. We look at what happened, why it didn't work out, and what it might have been like if they'd been able to realise their vision. This month our feature ties in with the imminent release of Denis Villeneuve's new film, Dune, and chronicles the story of the various previous attempts to bring this challenging story to the big screen. The one that got away for episode 18 is Alejandro Hodorowski's and Ridley Scott's and David Lynch's Dune Projects. So James, in terms of Dune, there's there's a lot to this. Um, I don't think you've read the book of Dune, have you?
0: No, it's not something that's actually ever interested I me. Mean, there was a guy at school who was who used to rave about it, but I couldn't be, didn't really.
1: You know, look, if it's not your genre, you you, you wouldn't read yeah. it. it's it's a huge, it's a huge sort of milestone of sci-fi, and interestingly, it's it's actually almost a fantasy novel as well. It really does bridge that gap between sci-fi and fantasy because the typical tropes of fantasy is that there is some sort of Power that's not just um, uh, you know it's not just technology and space travel and some sort of futuristic world that's happening. There is actually kind of mystical power going on. There's a a central character who's young and his true kind of background and birth and powers will come out and be emerged. And there's this strange new world and these strange new peoples that they come to know. So it's almost like fantasy set in the future. And it was um, it was as big as a lot of Asimov and Arthur Arthur C. Clarke sci-fi at the time and. Uh, it was one of these big, big books like Lord of the Rings that had a huge fan base, a de- sort of a really sort of, um, you know, av- avid fan base uh, that, that it's always been ambitious to bring it to the screen. And I don't know if you've seen the the, the previous attempts to film this, like David Lynch's *Junior* in 1984, or the, there was a TV miniseries in, in 2000. I'm not sure if you've seen either of those. No, you? I've
0: not seen. I've seen photos of them,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, particularly recently, kind of, you know, on IMDb, where it says, you
1: know, the original one and then the, <clears throat> yeah. the one that's coming out now. Sure. But, um,
0: no. Um.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, you know, that, that's uh, that, it's interesting to know how, you know how well known the story is to you. So, June is like a 600 and odd page book with a very complex storyline. Um, it's one of those things that, you know, as soon as it came out in the 60s, people would have, there were people who would have loved to try and make it into a film, but, you know, it's it's got easier over the years, you know, just in terms of technology and, and stuff like that to, to make it but there were a few attempts to make it that were just kind of um unsuccessful for a range of reasons. The first big one was that in the um in the early 70s um this French film producer bought the rights to the film um and decided on a quite independent scale but w- but with money because the, f- the book was so popular to uh, try and get this film made and the director that he looked to um for the adaptation was Alejandro Hodorowski, who is a very strange filmmaker. Uh, I, I'm not sure if you've ever seen any of his films like El Topo or anything like that, but he's no, never all heard of it, his man. films are essentially about people go out into the desert, take a lot of drugs, and weird shit happens. Who? A lot of the films are like very improvised. Um, he's he's visually very distinctive, um, very surreal. Um, He's not the sort of person you would naturally think, okay, so he's going to take this complex story and then work out how it's going to go on screen and, and st- you know sit there in charge of a very big production uh, and try and get from A to B on a very complex story. He's more likely to take a premise of something like this and then go out and improvise it and see where they go. So it was very interesting that they chose to do this with him and it's very interesting that he chose to try and do it. And I think it's just because it's a it's a fascinating story and he's an ambitious person. But it was... It was an absolutely crazy time. This is the 70s when people were prepared to try all sorts of shit, to be quite honest. And they got a bunch of designers involved. He spent a couple of years in pre-production. He spent $2 million just on pre-production, which is enough money to make a film back then. Not a film by, like June, but it's enough money to make a film. $2 million in the 1970s. And they spent that on pre-production and designs and locations. Uh, didn't shoot any actual film, but they did, spent a lot of time working out what they were going to do. And their idea was that this film was going to be 10 hours long um so it's it's frankly a bit of a white elephant um but they got dan o'bannon um now we talked about dan o'bannon when we did dark star for the year of the carpenter because he co-wrote and starred in dark star and he went on to do alien and total recall so he had a lot of the storylines and some of the designs and um uh drawings that they were that they were working on for for this film also, Chris Foss and Mobius, who are legendary artists who've done great illustrations and designs for sci-fi stories. Uh, Mobius also did a, a series um, of Silver Surfer. Um, that interestingly, Mobius' Silver Surfer is referred to in Crimson Tide and is famously one of the the adding additional touches that Quentin Tarantino added to the script for that film. So there's a lot of kind of sci-fi and comic book and art being being thrown around all this. And H.R. Giger. Now, H.R. Giga is the person who did the designs for the original Alien film. And he did a lot of really strange, weird, scary looking kind of almost monstrous you know, buildings and 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 vehicles and and rooms designs for this. So they had like about four or five different artists designing all of these weird things for the film. Um, I don't think it would ever have worked. I mean, you know, one, one of the, the people who wrote in for, for the film, they said there was going to be a shot of 400 people all taking a shit in the desert at the same time. This is the sort of madness that they, that they were working on. But it's really interesting that such a, a sort of an eclectic artistic team were trying to do it. And it, it this happened in the way that it did because the 70s was one of those times that um, people would try something a bit more creative than they would today. And they would try something a bit more mad than they would today. Um, quite honestly, I don't think that version of Dune would have worked. And, and what happened at the time was the there was spending money hand over fist and it wasn't getting them any closer to making the film. It was, it was, all this process I'm talking about took a couple of years. And um, the the guy who owned the rights to producer, he died. A heart attack oh, okay. or something like that. And so his untimely death um, meant that who actually now owned the rights to make this film was sort of in legal dispute. So there's a couple of years of legal disputes and, okay, well, does... The estate, or some other person connected to this film producer, do they now own the rights? Can they carry on with Hodorowski and keep making this film? Does it revert back to Frank Herbert, who wrote the book? He can. He can now choose to give these these rights to. It was disputed. It went to court. There were you know years of court cases, at which point Hodorowski didn't really have any finances left to carry on doing all of his mad designs, so he quit. But you can go online. I mean, I've got a couple of books that that discuss this film. I I put some of the pictures on on the socials about this as well. There are some fascinating drawings and designs from Giga and Mobius and Chris Foss and Dan O'Bannon for the film. So it would have been a really interesting film to look at. I mean, you've seen the film Alien, right? So you know what the internal designs of that alien spaceship are. Yeah. There would have been a lot of that kind of weird shit from H.R. Giga.
0: Um,
1: And Chris Foss was well known for making these really kind of amazing dramatic pictures of spaceships in the... um, in his kind of paintings and drawings and covers that he did for sci-fi novels and Mobius was very similar so there's a lot to look at online um, if you just look at Hodorowski's Dune to say well, that that would have looked incredible if they'd been able to make any of it happen I'm not sure what the special effects budget would have been for a film like that in 1975 or 76 when they were doing this um, but it is very interesting and there's also a documentary called Hodarowski's Dune which goes a lot more detail about what they were trying to do and it's it was a crazy time i've got to be honest with you i don't think it would have ever worked i in, in reality i don't know if you think differently james but when someone wants to take a big complex story and lord of the rings is very similar someone who's like might be some sort of creative visionary but is a little bit like untamed and not necessarily the sort of person who can sit down and, and manage a team of 200 people and say on this day that's going to happen on that day that's happen, and manage the complex logistics you're not going to get your fucking movie made. And that's why Peter Jackson made Lord of the Rings and no, and and other people didn't because he was able to marry his vision for the film with the ability to actually get it done.
0: That's what I was going to say. It's all about marrying the story with the right person to kind of lead it. Yeah. And you wouldn't give, you know, Lord of the Rings to Wes Anderson because those two styles just don't match up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially someone very improvisational, you know? Yeah. Um. Yeah. And, and, Interestingly, after that, there was a couple of years when nothing happened on it, but the the legal the legal kind of dispute over who owned the rights was resolved. A guy called Dino De Laurentiis, um, who we've talked about before, um, got the rights to it, and production started again. And th- the person they lined up after this was Ridley Scott. Right, okay. And this was going to be Ridley Scott's next film after Alien. So in 1979-80, Ridley Scott actually signed up to do this. He was actually going to do Dune... Uh, before he was going to do Blade Runner or any of the other films that he did, and he was working on this film. And he picked up some of the the work that had been done before by Mobius and Chris Foss and, and H.R. Giga, because he knew H.R. Giga, he'd worked with them on Alien. and said, well, I like Giga. Yeah, let's do this. Um, so it's possible that Ridley Scott was, was going to be able to take this complex vision that these people had had, had kind of built with a lot of their designs. He worked with Dan O'Bannon on Alien, worked with Giger on Alien. Mobius and Chris Foss had essentially just done drawings and designs. So all he needed was someone who could design design those for right. a film. So it's possible that he could have visual, you know, brought that vision to life and Ridley Scott is more more like the kind of director who could do a big film like that. Um, but personal personal matters got in the way. There was two things for Ridley Scott. One was he saw what was, what was being done on the film, and even though he was attacking it in a much more structured way than Hodorowski was, he knew it was going to be a minimum of two years before he even he could even start filming, right? So he was looking at it being easily like 1984 before an actual film came out. And he didn't want there to be a five-year gap between Alien when he just, he just kind of made a splash with Alien. He didn't want to lose all that momentum in his career and not be seen again for five years. And the other problem was, was his elder brother died of cancer, Uh, and he needed to take some time off so he took about six or seven months off and just said look I can't commit to the next kind of three or four or even five years of my life that I'm going to be doing this film and nothing else so he backed out of making the film um, and after he'd taken some time off he went and did Blade Runner instead and I've got to say I I, I love the original Book of Dune and I'm really excited about this new film that's coming out but I'm glad that Ridley Scott did Blade Runner instead.
0: Yeah I think it would have I think back then, I think it's better that they're making Dune now, um with uh, Denis Villeneuve because he's he's good at taking big projects um that are already like in existence, which he did with Blade Runner twenty forty nine. He's you know, there's such a massive following for Dune, he can kinda of harness that and do it properly. He's a very He's very structured. He's yeah, very good he's very structured, director, but he's also them.
1: very good at telling ambitious sci-fi stories because he's done Blade Runner 2049 and he's done Arrival. So it's not like they're taking someone yeah. only for his ability to, to like, manage the logistics of a large crew. They're taking someone who's actually willing, unable to tell these big sci-fi stories. Um, so I agree. And also the technology and special effects and everything are just so much more likely to work yeah. now.
0: I so, think Ridley Scott could have done a good job with it later on in his career and of fucking about with the counsellor. Yeah,
1: I agree. But I think he would, have been, he would have been defeated, frankly, by the limitations of special effects back then. Yeah. Just a quick footnote to this, there have been a couple of versions of Dune that have been made. In 1984, David Lynch directed, a famously directed a version of Dune that was, you know, that, that was released in cinemas, uh, but it was a complete disaster. It was a complete disaster for a couple of reasons. One, David Lynch is a, this was only David Lynch's third ever film. His first film was a, was Eraserhead, a which frankly is more like a Hodorowski film than you might think. It's weird, it's surreal, it's strange, it's disturbing. Um, it's certainly not the size and scale of film that you're talking about. Yeah, it's mental. Um, and then he did The Elephant Man, which is a terrific film. It's a period drama, and it would have taken a lot of work to kind of create the world, yeah, of The Elephant Man. But it's still a much more kind of, it's quite a traditional historical drama, okay? But David Lynch's weird, strange sensibility uh, and his compassion for... The unusual made that film work but neither of them really indicate oh this is the guy that you should give a massive sci-fi epic to and i know i overuse the word epic in these discussions, but dune is a very complex 600 page novel that creates a whole range of worlds and storylines and and opens up a universe that of which many more books were made so i think it does justify the phrase epic i don't think david lynch is, is quite the director for that sort of thing the other problem was he was totally screwed over by the studio he tried to do a three or four hour version of the film, which might just have been enough to tell the story of the first Dune book. Uh, and then they took it off and, and cut it down to two hours. So it doesn't make a blind bit blind bit of sense. Um, and it's got these bits where they got the, one of the characters who's the emperor of the, this kind of particular world um, to come in and just essentially talk to camera and explain what's going on because it was so difficult to work out what the fuck was happening. Um, interestingly, if you look at, if you were to watch a trailer for the first Dune film, you would see that all that being said, David Lynch did bring some of the visual world of Dune to life. And some of what Denis Villeneuve's done is similar, like the sandworms, um, some of the battle scenes and everything else. Very limited by the special effects, very limited by the fact the film was a mess. He's still got some of it out there. And if you watch that film, you'll hate it and it's a mess, but you will actually see signs of the good story in there from time to time. Um, but it was a mess and a failure and, a, you know, it took it took David Lynch some time to recover. And I think it took a long time for people to kind of attempt this story again. Uh, the only other version is that in the year 2000, they did a TV miniseries about it. And you might have thought this time around that they would have tried that for TV as well. Because when you see things like The Witcher and Game of Thrones and, uh, you know, they're doing a Lord of the Rings series now, I think we have talked in the past about how that kind of ambition can be achieved on TV series nowadays, especially with Netflix and, and, and Amazon and, and HBO. But um, back then, it was they didn't have the special effects. You didn't get that kind of budget for series back then, and it's a better version of the story. But visually and in terms of the available actors, it doesn't stand up. Um, it's good, and it's a far better version of the story. But it doesn't it doesn't have that big epic, like big screen sweep that you want it to have. So really what we're hoping now is that Denny Villeneuve is the, is, the, is, is the perfect match for this now. The technology's there, the effects are there, the, the, the fan base is there to make the movie, and Villeneuve is the kind of person who can take, take a big production like that. He's also only doing the first half of the story. He hasn't filmed the second half. They're waiting to see how this half does. So we might be about to get the, the conclusion to this one that got away story, because if Villeneuve's film is a big success and they let him make the second half of the story and it's as good, then we will finally have um, the Dune film that people have been trying to to see for 50 years. Um, So we're closer to the finish line in this story, but there's still a lot to find out yet. We close the first rule of the episode with the remake hate watch. This is where we relax our usual calm and balanced approach to our film discussions and rant at the lack of originality in the Hollywood boardroom. Whether they call it a remake, a reboot, a reimagining, we don't like it and we want it to stop. There are, of course, examples of good remakes when they are justified and well done. This feature does not discuss those films. What we look at here are remakes that disrespected the memory of a film that they should have left well alone. This month, we're tying back to this month's Year of the Carpenter entry with a new version that was made of the same story. The remake hate watch for episode 18 is 2005's Assault on Precinct 13. So just for a bit of background, uh, earlier in the episode, we talked about the the original background to Assault on Precinct 13, the basic plot line, it's a siege and a disused police station. We also talked about how it was a um, sort of a remake, but not quite a remake of um, an old Howard Hawks Western, but they've essentially taken the basic premise and the idea of a siege you know, a siege kind of action film, uh, and repurposed it in a new and very interesting way. This is pretty much a remake of the original film. It's based the same basic storyline in that it's a police precinct which is surrounded. It's a, you know, it's kind of it's disused for different reasons, but it's still a a, a very quiet police pre- precinct which is surrounded by enemies who are trying to kill everyone inside. But they expand the storyline. Now you've got story outlines about corrupt cops and organized crime lords um, instead of a Uh, uh, just a new tough cop who's uh, who just happens to be presiding over the the transfer of the precinct to a new new world you've got like a a damaged um, cop played by Ethan Hawke who's trying to redeem himself Uh, and instead of a criminal who just happens to be there you've got an organized crime kind of kingpin played by Lawrence Fishburne who was actually there and that's who the uh, the the killers are trying to get Um, so they've expanded and adjusted the stories a number of ways but it's still basically the same film. It was directed in 2000 and uh, and released in 2005. Um, The guy directed is a guy called Jean-Francois Richet. He's a French director who was making his Hollywood debut after various work in his home country. After this, he pretty much went back to doing French productions, um, apart from doing Bloodfather, that action B movie with Mel Gibson, and apart from a gangster drama called Mesrine, he's not really done anything of great note. The script was written by a guy called James DeMonaco, who hadn't done much of note before this remake, apart from writing the script for Jack. Which we agreed recently was Coppola's worst film. He went on to write the Purge films and also direct some of them, um, which are quite John Carpenter influenced. It does seem that James DeMonaco was a big John Carpenter fan and did intend this film, you know, to be like a homage to uh, to John Carpenter. Um, so you know, perhaps we should cut him a bit of slack for that. Uh, the only other thing of notice, uh, the only other thing of note that I wanted to mention was. Uh, this remake cost 30 million dollars to make which is about 300 times what the original film cost to make so that's our background to the new assault on precinct uh, 13 film um so the, the first question james is i know you said before you haven't watched a lot of john carpenter so have you have you seen the original um 1976 film uh no i haven't actually so um, you, you you came to this fresh which may well have been the case for a lot of a audi- lot of the audience back in 2005 Yes, yeah, the so, on precinct thirteen wasn't huge in America, so it might be that a lot of people like you were coming to this a bit fresher than I was. So it was interesting to to see what you think of it. Uh, yeah, this this film was shit. Um, <laughs> like I like Ethan
0: Hawke, I do like him. I think he's a good actor. I think he's talented. I think he's you know one of the one of the more under not I don't want to say underrated, but he's not spoken about as much as other actors yeah uh are at this present moment in time but i he's, think he's he's, an he's, he's, actor. he's quite
1: he's, he's quite an interesting actor as well and you see and like, the roles he chooses to play
0: i also like Lawrence fishburne i think Lawrence fishburne is a terrific actor yeah but i don't know it was just i didn't like the fucking just didn't like the color of this film i don't know like just it was such a weird dark dingy kind of like lens they'd use on the on the um on the camera and it was just i didn't like that to begin with so that pissed me off and then it was it just felt like there was nothing new about it it was just the, which i suppose is probably the theme the, the probably the, the a recurring theme with our remake hate watches but i just didn't find anything interesting nothing gripped me about it i watched about 20 minutes of it and i thought nothing's gonna happen here and nothing did happen so i just i think i, I can't remember what minute i put it off at but i, I put it off and that was it i think um I was watching it with my girlfriend, and she'd seen it the two thousand, the two thousand and five version. Said, "Yeah, nothing happens in this. Like I've seen it before, and it's shit." So I was like, yeah. "Am I going to miss anything by not finishing this film? She went, "Not really." So I didn't. Yeah, fair um,
1: enough. I mean, interesting, and this is the thing. This is a, this is a, it's a really good object lesson because the original film is the epitome of not needing to do a straight remake, even if you've got ideas from old films that you want to use. So it's almost more. Like glaring that they try and remake a film like that. They they took the one of the one of the object lessons in how to take familiar material and do something fresh with it, and almost went out of their way to do something that was so not fresh with it. Um, and I yeah. think that that point you make about the uh, the color palette and everything is is quite interesting because I think the reason they tried to make it quite dark is because the original is quite dark. But the original quite is quite dark in the right way because John Carpenter was brilliant at, at you know telling stories at night, getting the colors just um just right lots of shadow um and he doesn't put crap lenses on things he lights the film well that's how he does things and but because the original film had that kind of sensibility they tried to do their version of that and that's where they fell down there's a lot of stuff in this film which is actually new and different from the original film but they keep getting tripped up and going, oh but we have because they were tied to the actual storyline the actual title the actual entire premise of the first film they kept being they basically held themselves back from doing something new and interesting this time. Um, if, I mean, if, it'd be, it's quite interesting to compare. If you watch the original Rio Bravo, it's a John Wayne Western, right? It doesn't look like John Carpenter's version of the story. It doesn't, you know, have quite the same characters. And It's basically, that it's a siege film. There's lots of siege films. And siege films like heist films very rarely need to be remade because you can just borrow influences from all sorts of similar films but do your own interesting thing with it. Exactly as one of the uh, one of the uh, audience members who wrote in uh, exactly pointed out, there's a French film called The Nest which did that very thing. They loved Assault on Precinct 13 but they did their own fresh thing with this idea rather than a remake. So they should have known from the beginning and that film came out before this version. And they know how the original film got made, which was take an idea and do something fresh with it. So they knew fine well that they were doing the wrong thing, and they bloody did it anyway. Um, and all of the stuff that they that they ended up trying to do with the film, they probably should have probably should have if they were going to do it, they should have tried to make the new elements of their story work on their own, rather than trying to crowbar them into the the storyline of John Carpenter's original film, because that's where they fall down. All, all, this, all the new stuff—the corrupt cops, the different characters inside there, the different reason that Lawrence Fishburne's character is in there, the different reason—it's, it's, it's kind of they do it just to just to be a bit different from the first film. So what they do that's different from the original film is underdeveloped, and as you say, no, it doesn't make it very interesting. It's just kind of all a bit perfunctory.
0: Yeah, I've not, I've nothing to really add. It was just, it was just why couldn't lawrence fishburne and ethan Hawke in 2005 who were still you know relatively fresh i know lawrence fishburne had been kicking about for ages by that point but he wasn't the older man that he is now um why couldn't they've you know done something a little bit more interesting
1: yeah i mean they could have a siege in which they're all trapped yeah but all the storyline could have been a lot you know a lot better but you know do, do your own story, would, would have been yeah. the answer, because they do try and do that. I mean, one of the big differences between this and, and John Carpenter's version of the film is that they don't tell you a lot about the characters. Now, I'm not saying that no film should give you the background to the characters, but that film works because they trap you in that situation, and it's all about how they act in that situation. Everything you know about the cop, the criminal, the woman who works at the police station, the gangsters outside, um, the other people caught up in the situation, all you know about them is how they operate in that situation there's a lovely bit of characterization at, at the start of the film where the um Napoleon Wilson is the uh uh is the, is the criminal who is fighting alongside the police to kind of get away from these gangs in the John Carpenter version and he's a very stylish character he's full of wisecracking one-liners the the woman in the in in the film finds him attractive because he's he's got a bit of panache about him but he's 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 you know he's been you know he's on trial for murder he's going to death row so there's a there's nothing can happen between them, but he's a fascinating character, um, all based on what you see of him. You don't see his background. And his, his, his recurring line is, has anyone got a smoke? Because he hasn't got any cigarettes on him. And all of the other cops tell him to fuck off when he asks for a cigarette. And our cop, the black guy, the hero of the, you know, Austin Stoker, the the, the main guy in, the, uh, in, in, in this story, he's decent to him, even though he doesn't have a cigarette. He says, no, sorry, I don't have a cigarette. I'll let you know if I, you know, I'll let you know if I see one, right? And that that criminal, because that cop was decent to him, he kind of says, "Well, if I need to, if I need to stand next to that guy and fight, I will, because of the way that guy treated me." And that everything I've just told you takes ten seconds because John Carpenter is very good at telling his story concisely, and everything you need to know about those characters is based on what you see on screen. This film, the remake, it tries to give you all the background to the characters. Why Lawrence Fishburne is is in the situation that he's in? Some story of his, like dealings with corrupt cops as a crime kingpin, but it doesn't make him sympathetic. He's still a fucking gangster. He's actually the cause of all these problems. I, I don't really feel any sympathy for him. And they give you this background to Ethan Hawke as to why he's working a desk job in that precinct because his previous, you know, undercover drug operation went wrong and now he's really damaged by it. But it doesn't add anything to this story. Um, and, and it's only there to kind of give you a bit of plot line. And it's like, what you should have done was, you should have expanded that story, and don't try so hard to do what John Carpenter's already done. Take those stories and see if you can make that work as a new story. And if the film ends with a siege, good for you, right? But in, instead, all of those storylines basically get cut off and, and become quite uninteresting as a result. And it's a clear, clear example of them not doing what they should have done with this story. Which is all the more stupid, as I said, because John Carpenter gave him a blueprint in his original film of what to do.
0: Yeah, it just it didn't need to be. I think that's the the, the message we have for most things about this. Not even just the remake, Hate Watch, but when it comes to a new Bond and whether we should have a female Bond, just make, just let's get these films made where we don't have to jump on the back of an already existing franchise or existing classic. Just get out there, write the film, and get it made
1: yeah yeah it's it's exactly it's exactly it i mean we have talked previously and i think daniel craig said that said this exactly about the new bond film which is why not create a new character for a woman yeah ha- the reason you're doing this is because you want to have a new kind of film where where a woman's in the lead go and make that film i'll watch it basically is what he said and that's exactly the same thing here don't try and remake this film however inspired you are by this film do what John Carpenter did and take the films that inspire you and use them to make something fresh. Uh And, you know, I have to say there are some remakes I love and one of John Carpenter's, well, John Carpenter's actual best film, The Thing, is an actual remake. There are sometimes times when a remake is justified and this wasn't one of them. Yeah, when you remake a classic that's already there, mm-hmm. don't don't bother. But if you're remaking a film that
0: sucks, then, you know, by all means. Or, or, for, or for
1: various reasons, you know, we'll, we'll talk like, about The Thing in its Like episode. Dread,
0: like yeah. Dread. The first dread film shit, so they remade it and it was good. Yeah, but, that's uh, fine.
1: Yeah, and th- there's other things, there's other examples. I mean, No Way Out we talked about on this this episode. It was a, that that what they've done there is they've gone well. That's an interesting basic story. What if we set it in this entirely different environment? Wouldn't that be interesting? And and that can work as well. Um, but just to say, we're going to do the same film, but but not really commit to to what would require to make it work. Results in something quite turgid with a good cast. Um, Maria Bello plays a, a, a psychiatrist in this one. She's a good actress. I like Ethan Hawke. I like Lawrence Fishburne. Gabriel Burns in it. Brian Dennehy. Good cast. Completely wasted. $30 million. Completely wasted. Shame. We're going to take an intermission now, sorry for interrupting the flow. The second reel of the podcast is available to download now, and we hope you will rejoin us soon for the exciting conclusion of this month's episode.
0: When you do, we'll be taking on the big conversation. This month we're looking at great movie music and our
1: favourite film composers. That's all for the first reel of this month's episode of Double Reel. This podcast is edited on Audacity and hosted on Anchor FM, and we are grateful for their continued support.
0: The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. We'll give you a full set of credits at the end of reel two of the episode, including info on the
1: films and topics we discussed. Look forward to joining you for the second reel soon. See you on the other side.
0: Start that again. (laughs) Shit. Because cutting that up is going to be like chopping a fucking grain of sand.